Hello and welcome to Conversations on Karate. I'm Sue. I'm Greg. This is a, a repost, Sue, isn't it, of a conversation we had last year mm. with Sensei Chuck Merriman. Yeah, he sadly passed on last week in October 2021. He did, yeah. Very sad news for the, well, I was going to say karate world, but the martial arts world really in general. Yeah, and his many, many students and friends all around the world. Yeah, so we thought we'd just share this again because um, it was one of the easily one of the best conversations we had. We spoke to him for a, a good few hours. Mm. Um, unfortunate we, that we didn't get to speak to him again. Yeah, we'd hoped that we would be able to one day. We hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoyed talking to him. Mm-hmm. So enjoy. And welcome to Conversations on Karate. I'm Sue. I'm Greg. And we've got another guest today, a special guest. We have all the way from America. Whereabouts in America are you, Sensei, actually? Oh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. There we go. Phoenix, Arizona. All the way from Phoenix, Arizona. Sensei yeah. Chuck Merriman. How are you, Sensei? I'm fine. I'm fine. We're trying to beat the heat. It's 115 degrees here today, so... Oh. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's not 150 degrees A little warm. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's early in the morning where you are as well. Um, it's now uh, 10.30. Wow. It's 115 degrees at 10.30 in the morning. That is... Oh, yeah, we wake up. When we wake up, it's 90. 90 yeah, degrees. <laughs> that's too hot for me. <laughs> that's too hot for me. Because that they say it's dry heat, so it doesn't yeah. count. <laughs> How do you manage in heat like that? Do you just not go out very much and keep the aircon on? Yeah, you know, you know what it is is uh, you learn how to uh, time yourself. Like uh, a lot of people here that work will work early in the morning and then take a break and come back to work later on in the afternoon. So in our case, we don't have to go out if we don't need to, so we regulate our time accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, that is but that's it's insanely a, hot. It's a beautiful state, and it's. Uh, I hate winter time. I I grew up in uh, Connecticut on the East Coast. Terrible winters, harsh winters, and I just uh, I just had to get someplace where I was warm, you know. Especially yeah. as you get older. So that's why we moved out here about 10, 15 years ago. Okay. So we, when we have guests, Sue, we always uh, get a brief rundown of martial history. And, and Sensei, you've got a lot of martial history. Um, so do you want to tell the listeners um, kind of who you've trained with, uh, where you've trained, a brief rundown of your, sure. your karate history? Um, I Actually, I started in judo, and I think... Uh, I started in 1960 okay. in Judo and uh, in Connecticut, and I think uh, during that time a lot of people started in Judo because karate was just another word that that you heard every once in a while. Yeah, nobody was teaching it, and it was very very new. 
So I started in judo and um, then uh, I, the, the guy that was teaching judo, it's a strange story, but he was, um, he had trained in Japan while he was in the Air Force. And he trained at the Kodokan, which is the oh, Mecca, you know, the, yeah. uh, the place to be. And uh, he made his black belt there. And of course, he, he came back to the U.S. and he opened up a little dojo. And it was in a YMCA. And he actually had tatami, regular rice tatamis brought in from Japan. And that was our dojo floor. And uh, I went to training one night and uh, everybody was standing outside. And so, uh, you know, hey, what's going on? I don't know. We're waiting for Sensei to come. And we waited, we waited, and we waited. He never showed up. And to this day, nobody knows whatever happened to him. Oh, wow, just really? Disappeared, yeah. And wow. I, was, I was distraught, really, because it's something I finally found. Uh, I was never a team person. I mean, yeah. for me. I don't like to rely on anybody else for, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to help me out. So judo was ideal for me. Yeah. And uh, so I was distraught. I didn't know what to do. So I told my wife at the time I was uh, married and I had a son. And uh, I said, I've got to find some place to train. And at that time, it was either New York or Boston. There was nothing, very, very little going on anywhere else. Mm. So I took a day trip to Boston, uh, to New York. And I looked around, I got in the yellow pages, and I started looking for karate, uh, judo schools. And I found one, just picked it out of, the, out of the number that was there. And there weren't that many. There was maybe three or four. And I went and I, I went to the dojo on 34th Street and 8th Avenue. And I said, uh, talk to the owners. And actually, they, they were called the judo twins. Oh, okay. Uh, unbelievable. You got to, it's hard to picture this, but they were huge guys. And they were identical twins. I could not tell apart either one of them apart until I was in that dojo for about three or four months. Oh, wow. Identical. Then I figured out the only way I could tell them apart was when they started talking. <laughs> and, and so that's how I finally could separate them. But so I told him what the story was, and I said, well, you know, I said, I'm going to have to come here. If I come here, I'm going to have to find work, and, you know, I, I have a family. So they said, well, you can, if you want, you can sleep in the dojo, and you can open it up and close it and maybe clean up. And I said, fine. So I went back and I told my wife, I said, I, I've got good news and I've got bad news. <laughs> <laughs> good news is I found a dojo to train in. Well, she said, oh, great. And I said, the bad news is you're going to have to go back and live with your mother for a while. <laughs> and she said, no problem. She, this, was, this was my first wife, mother of my children. And uh, she passed away in 1989. And then I remarried Lil, who's my wife now in 1999. Yeah. So she was willing to let me do that. And uh, so I was in seventh heaven. I went moved into the dojo and I lived there in the dojo for almost a year. Yeah. And uh, actually I was looking around New York City for different jobs to do. And I never had any training in anything. Uh, 
I, I wasn't an electrician. I wasn't a guard. I wasn't anything. Mm. So uh, I would take odd jobs. Uh, I laid carpet for a while. Then I got a job at the uh, post office driving a truck. And then I got a job at uh, United Nations in security. And the funny thing was, was that anytime my work interfered with my training, I'd quit and I'd go get a, di a different job. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm trying to, you know, make money and send it home to my family. And uh, it just so happened that they had two floors, two levels on 34th Street. And uh, they had hired this guy that just came back from Europe. And his name was Christy DeBase. And he taught an early form of Shitoryu. Okay. So I was living in the dojo. So I'm, I'm not a I'm not a club person or a bar person. You know, mm. I'll go out and have a beer or something, but not to hang out. Yeah. So I would finish. I had training in judo on the third floor, on the fourth floor, and he was teaching on the third floor. So after training in judo, I'd go down and I'd sit and watch him, and he would do kata practicing his kata. And that just amazed me. I was looking at that saying, that's that's like ballet, man. That's incredible. Mm. And uh, so finally, I said one night, I said, Sensei, uh, would it be okay if I joined the class? And he said, sure, sure. You know, very few people here, maybe he might add six, seven people. So now I started doing judo from six to eight and karate from eight to ten. And it was every night. Wow. And, well, I was just, first of all, I had nothing else to do. And yeah. second of all, I was just so intrigued by uh, this uh, karate thing. Yeah. Uh, I'd seen it in comic books with the, the guy hitting somebody and the lightning bolt coming down and all, you know, yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> and that was, I said, I'm sitting here watching the real thing. So, uh, and then uh, judo competition, uh, very hard on the body, very hard. Yeah, yeah and uh, especially New York City was rough judo. Yeah. Uh, remembering now that it was fairly new to all of us, so we were kind of crude in a way in our technique. Mm. It wasn't fine like it is today. And uh, so I started doing less and less judo competition and more and more putting my time into karate. And uh, at that time, there was no competition in karate. Um, the first one, I think, was held in 1962. And during that time, uh, I was training uh, with Sensei the base had a, a falling out with the judo twins. And so he quit. He was going to quit teaching it. Right. So he said to me, there's a, a person teaching uh, Goju-ryu karate, and his name is Peter Urban. Mm -hmm. And he said, he's a friend of mine. I want you to go and train with him. I'm not going to be teaching here anymore. So he took me to Sensei Urban and um, Sensei Urban took me in. And he was at the time with the Goju Kai in Japan. Yeah. Under Yamaguchi. Yamaguchi, yeah. Uh, so we were to affiliated with the Goju Kai in Japan under Yamaguchi Sensei. So... Uh, that was fine. It was great. And then I started competing. They started having small tournaments in the early 60s. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't sophisticated at all. It was like uh, uh, everybody would sign up and they'd pick two names. 
you know, you could get a tall guy, a short guy, a fat guy, a heavy yeah. guy, whatever. But, and the only restriction was, was that if they picked two names from the same dojo, they would separate you. But right. other than that, it was just uh, chance luck. Yeah. And um, so uh, I started uh, going to some of those, and I still kept some judo training, but not competition. And uh, then uh, Sensei Irvin decided in 1960, I think about 67, decided to separate from the Goju Kai. And he wanted to start his own version of Goju, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, he wanted to call it American Goju. And it was something I wasn't interested in doing. And yeah. so I sat down and I talked to him about it. And uh, I said, Since it's just, I'm not, uh, I'm too young to understand all of this stuff, too young in karate. And, uh, but I don't want to change. I want to stay with the Goju Kai. And he said, no problem. You have my blessing. He said, what I'm going to be doing is not for everybody. And it's a drastic uh, change that I'm making. Yeah. And so I stayed with the Goju Kai under Yamaguchi. And I went out to uh, California to uh, San Francisco to train with Gosei, the oldest son. And uh, he accepted me. I told him he knew the story about Sensei leaving. And I said, I want to stay with Goju Kai. And he said, fine, no problem. So uh, he graded me to Sandan. And uh, then I was officially a member of Goju Kai on my own rather than with Sensei. Yeah. And uh, that was fine for, for a number of, number of years. The thing was always, I'm, I've always been curious about history and um, origins. Yeah. I'm that way today even... Uh, I look up oranges of words sometimes. I'll see a word and I'll go, man, I wonder where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> so I had the same curiosity about karate. And at that time, none of us had ever heard of Okinawa. Mm. Okinawa was a little piece of land attached to Japan at the bottom. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, Yamaguchi uh, sensei never mentioned um Yama, uh, Miyagi Sensei, never. I never heard the name. Uh, a big factor in our training is called uh, uh, Hojo Undo, yeah. which is training with equipment. And yeah. we never heard anything about that. Uh, never heard anything about the training methods in Okinawa. It was everything was geared, centered around mainland Japan. And until later on, I was under the impression that. Yamaguchi Gogen Sensei had was the founder of Goju Ryu. Mm. That's the only picture I ever saw. And, yeah, you know, and uh, and of course he was a very very mystical man. He read the crystal ball and he did yoga and yeah. you know very uh, long hair, always dressed in Japanese clothing, never Western clothing. Yeah, and uh, so he was this very mysterious person that we only heard about. Mm. And so uh, everything was okay up to a point. And then uh, a few things happened that I got very disillusioned with the way things were going, uh, the treatment of the way certain people were treated and so on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, at that time, one of the top people in the Goju Kai, uh, Yamamoto Sensei, 
left Goju Kai and started his own organization called IKO. Mm-hmm. He contacted me and I said, I would like to train with you under IKO. So he said, fine. So I went with him. And still, it was still basically the same thing that nothing yeah. changed, just a name. And so um, uh, that was fine for a while. And then again, disillusionment set in. And uh, I went on my own for almost 20 years. I just got really disillusioned with that whole hierarchy thing. And yeah. it wasn't it wasn't benefiting me in, in, in the least. And so uh, I said, okay. So I went on my own. I didn't wasn't affiliated. And I never changed anything. I just kept doing what I was taught over the years and never... Mm-hmm. Never added anything or made up my own stuff, just what I was doing. So, uh, and then I heard of, uh, I started researching a lot. And I'm finding out more and more about Okinawa. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, so karate really started there. It didn't start in mainland Japan. Ah, so, so now I'm trying to do more research on Okinawa. And uh, at during that time, I heard of a teacher in uh, San Diego named Higona Morio. Yeah. Uh, I started researching him. And um, his background was incredible. Mm-hmm. And the following that he had was very loyal, very, he was very old school, old school. Yeah. He, he didn't train with Miyagi-sensei. He trained with Miyazato-sensei. Yeah. Who who was the student of Miyagi's? Yeah. So uh, I would I used to go to a, a tournament in uh, Las Vegas, uh, Ozawa Sensei's tournament, and uh, Ozawa Sensei was the most senior Shotokan teacher in the United States at the time. He passed away some years ago. Mm. So I would see Higona Sensei at these events. So finally, one day, I got up the courage and I went over and I introduced myself. And uh, he said, oh, please sit down. So I sat down with him and we talked. And I explained the whole situation like I've explained it to you. And I said, at some point, I'd, I'd really like to, if possible, to come and train with you in San Diego. So he said, absolutely, please be coming at my request. So I said, great. So I... Finally, I got to go to San Diego to a big event that he he holds every year called the Miyagi Festival. So I went, and lo and behold, I go there. I see a whole bunch of people that used to be with us in the Goju Kai are now training (laughs) old friends of mine. So it's like old homework, right? Yeah, Yeah. So I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I'm home. And I figured because Hiona Sensei was involved you know, directly with Okinawa, also mm. I'll get a chance to go to Okinawa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I trained with him for a short time, and uh, uh, it was it was great. He's an incredible teacher, a very charismatic person, and uh, always had this big smile on his face, and uh, I was very, very happy. And um, unfortunately, it didn't turn out too well for me. And uh, I wound up also disassociating myself with his group, the IOGKF. 
and uh, mostly because of me that uh, I was expecting more and yeah, uh, yeah. I waited 20 years before I committed to anybody and yeah, uh, yeah. at that time I was uh, Rokudan, uh, six Dan under uh, Yamamoto sensei and I had been when I went on my own I had been offered rank from people which I you know I I really appreciated that they thought enough of me to offer it, but I never took it. I never took any rank from anybody. And the thought in the back of my mind always was, eventually one day I'm going to get to Okinawa. And at that time, you just couldn't go to Okinawa and walk in the dojo. No, no. A lot has changed since then, unfortunately, yeah. for me anyway. But. You had to have a letter of recommendation. You had to, there was a trial period where you didn't really learn much. You, you, they were feeling you out and, mm. you know, uh, uh, what's this guy doing here? What does he want, you know? Yeah. So uh, uh, I got, um, there was a, a seminar held in Canada and I heard about it and there was a, a man, uh, a teacher, a senior teacher from Jundokan and uh, Okinawa, and I had already done some research about Jundokan and some of the other organizations. And um, so I called up the tournament, uh, the uh, seminar director, and I asked him if it'd be all right if I came, and he said, sure. So I went and I took the seminar. And the teacher teaching the seminar was um, uh, Yasuda-sensei. Uh, his name is Tetsunouke Yasuda. Um, very senior uh, teacher in, in uh, Jindoka. Mm -hmm. I got to meet him and uh, it was just incredible because he was such a great, really nice person, uh, great instructor, very easy to approach, very easy to talk to. And of course, I made sure that I, he knew that I wanted to go to Okinawa. And, yeah. some, and I told him before we left, before I left it, that that's something I would really like to do. So he said, please come come and train with us. And anytime you would like. And he said, I, I will mention to Miyazato-sensei that we talked and that you would like to come. This is a, a direct connection. Yeah. Direct without it. So I called up my friend, Pat McCarthy-sensei, which you know, mm -hmm. and say, Pat, and I told him I wanted to go to Okinawa. So he said, oh, I, I know Miyazato-sensei. Uh, uh, so I said, well, would you give me a letter of introduction? And he said, sure, of course. Even though I, even though I had a, an invitation from Yasuda-sensei, I still wanted to do the, the proper thing. Yeah. You know, present yeah. my letter and so on. So uh, Sensei Pat gave me a letter of introduction. And I packed up my stuff, got on a plane and went to Okinawa. This was in the early 90s. And uh, I went for three weeks and um, I went all by myself and kept in touch with my wife. And, uh, and uh, by that time, it was now Lou, Lou was my wife and uh, kept in touch with her. And by uh, at, during those times, it was really hard. You had to make you had to get a time when she would call and I would be able to. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Now it's, it's so easy. Yeah. So um, I went and my 
my um, whole purpose was to go for three weeks and get as much as I could substantiate substantial foundation, so to speak. And by now, I had already started uh, tweaking my kata more toward Okinawa, mm -hmm. Okinawan goju. There were, a lot of people don't know, but there's a, a big, big difference between Japanese goju and Okinawan goju. The emphasis is different. Yeah, I was going to say about that, because we, we, we kind of, we, we noticed that with kind of our systems, like Shotokan compared to Okinawa and Shore and Ru and stuff. And I was going to ask you, is it the same with goju? But obviously, obviously it is. It's the same kind of deal, I guess. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, that uh, when karate went from Okinawa to Japan, um, Funakoshi Sensei was the person that they picked to to introduce it, so to speak. It yeah. had been it had been introduced before, but not not so uh, aggressively as mm -hmm. when um, um, Funakoshi Sensei went. Now it was to establish karate in mainland Japan. Yeah. To make it a part of the Budo system. So uh Funakoshi Sensei wasn't wasn't the best karate man. Uh and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean no, 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 they, no. Had, they had to uh he had to fit into Japanese society. So yeah. he was a, a calligrapher, a, a scholar, so he would be more acceptable to Japanese culture. He was the and, most marketable karate man, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, Goju Ryu had been, had been demonstrated in mainland Japan before that. Mm. So, um, uh, where was I? <laughs> I got off track. Uh, Goju in Japan compared to Okinawa. Yeah. So, going there, I set a, a, a schedule for myself. At that time, Miyazato-sensei was still alive, and he lived on the third floor of the dojo. Mm -hmm. So he would get up early in the morning, and he would come down, and he'd putter around out in front and hosing down the, the little garden that he had, or little odds and ends or something in the dojo. And he would open up the dojo. About 8 o'clock, the doors would open up, and uh, you were free to come and go. So 8 o'clock in the morning, I would go. And then two o'clock in the afternoon, I would go back. Six o'clock at night, I would go back. And I did that six days a week for the three weeks that I was there. Wow. So I would see Miyazato Sensei every morning, you know. Uh, and uh, I picked up a few Okinawan words too. And uh, <laughs> so I'd, I'd say hello to him in Okinawa. I say Sensei, and he'd get a big smile on his face. And uh, so. Um, being is that uh, early in the morning, there's nobody there. Mm. And um, at that time, when Mia Sensei was alive, we didn't have classes in the dojo. There was no such thing as a class. People would just come and go all day long. If they had a half hour, they'd come in and train for a little while and leave. Or yeah, some people would come in on their lunch hour and train. And uh, as you're training, if there was a senior in the dojo, or Miyazato Sensei would see you. He would come over and give you a correction and then walk away and leave you, you know, to practice. Yeah. And, um, 
Mia Sensei was, he was a very, very sharp guy in the sense that intuitively he was, he would look at you and his main thought about you was, why are you here? What's your intentions? Yeah. And he would ask three questions. How old are you? How long have you been training? What rank are you? During the time that you were training, he would watch you and he would evaluate those three things to your performance. What you were doing, how you acted in the dojo, mm. how you conducted yourself. Uh, were you training or were you just looking around trying to take pictures or what, what are you doing? Yeah. And so the idea, which I learned early on from Sensei DeBase was that Sensei can only correct you if you're doing something. If you're standing there looking around at the mirrors, can't help you, can't do anything yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the minute I would get in, I'd put my gi on and I'd warm up a little bit and then I'd start practicing kata or hitamakiwara or train with the hojundo or whatever. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, Sensei would see me. And remember now, there's nobody in the dojo. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. He yeah. would come up and he'd give me something to do. And I'd practice. And what he would do, he'd watch you, make sure you understood what he told you, and then he'd leave you alone. And um, he might go on about his, he might go upstairs or whatever. On the second level, Judokan is kind of a hard thing to explain, but uh, uh, when you walk on the floor and you look up, it's straight up to the ceiling all the way up. Right. As you come in, it's three levels, actually, small levels. And then it opens up into this big dojo. So he lived on the third floor of those three levels. On the second floor, he had a, uh, a little room with a TV and a little refrigerator. And that was his sanctuary. He would go up there and he liked the old, uh, he had videos of some of the old Chinese methods of training and so on. He liked mm -hmm. to do that like to watch some of those. And uh, so uh, he might go up there and spend time in his little sanctuary. And then he would come back down a half hour later, an hour later and look at you again. And if you were practicing what he showed you, trying to implement that into your training, he would try to take you another step further. If you weren't practicing that, he wouldn't pay any attention to you. Just walk yeah. by you like you're not even there. And the thinking always is, is that if you're not going to practice what I showed you now, why should I give you something else you're not going to practice? <laughs> so, Makes sense. <laughs> so he would evaluate you on those three three questions. And, of course, if you said, uh, well, I'm a, uh, I'm a fifth-degree black belt, and he looks at you and you told him you were 18 years old and uh, you've been training for six, five years, and you yeah. go, mm, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. But he would never say to you know that you're not that rank. Mm. But what he do, he'd evaluate you. He would teach you at whatever level he thought you were. Yeah. So the choice is simple. Either wake up and think, well, I guess I'm not who I think I am, mm -hmm. and start learning or leave. Either way, the problem was solved. Yeah. So very, you know, you take some young guy who thinks he's a certain rank, you're not going to convince him that he's not. Right. So why even bother? So that was a, a good way of him evaluating what you were going to be learning or what he would be able to teach you. And um, 
So spending a lot of time, I was very fortunate that uh, that uh, people didn't really start coming into the dojo until around six o'clock, five thirty, five five thirty, six o'clock. Uh, training group training uh, started usually around six o'clock. Again, not classes, but group training. Yeah. And uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, Yasuda Sensei always used to make himself available for um, um, foreigners, uh, gaijin who would come in to train. He would take them specially and give them special attention, mm-hmm. and uh, which was which was great. And unfortunately, Yasuda Sensei is not in the dojo much anymore. He's he's got to be in his. He's got to be a hundred years old. <laughs> wow! He's, uh, well into his late nineties, and uh, of course he he was always um, he sensei did yoga. He did he was studied iaido. Had an enormous uh, collection of swords, and uh, he was in real estate. He owned real estate business, and so he would come uh, and help the the foreigners uh, at two in the afternoon. He'd schedule a group session with them. So I would go to that too, and then in the evening I would come to the open six o'clock training, and uh, three weeks, and I was just soaking everything up, taking notes, and and uh, going over things over and over and over again to make sure that when I left, I was pretty well, pretty well stable in the in the foundation, mm. and uh, then. Um, as I said, I had been graded to Rokudan from uh, Yamamoto-sensei. And uh, so on Saturday, uh, we don't train on Sundays. Dojo's closed on Sunday. On uh, Friday night, uh, Miyazato-sensei said to me, asked me if I had a camera. And I said, yes, sensei. Because he told me when I first met him that feel free to take any photos, any videos, whatever. You, you're, you're more than welcome to do that. But I was more interested in training, so yeah. I didn't do a lot of that. So he asked me if I had a camera, and I said yes. And there were no cell phones, so I had a regular camera. And uh, so uh, I came with the camera, and we trained. Then after training, there was um, oh, maybe 10 people in the dojo, if that, and a couple of the seniors. And uh, he called everybody together, and... Uh, called me up front and said, uh, with his English was very limited, so he had an interpreter, Yasuda Sensei would interpret. Mm. And uh, he said that uh, uh, he thanked me for coming and training with them, and that uh, he hoped that I would continue uh, training in, in the methods that I had learned at Jundokan and to to help propagate Goju to Okinawa and Goju to outside the Okinawa. And I said, uh, absolutely, of course. And then he presented me with a certificate for seven ton, none and done. Wow. And uh, yeah, Amazing. well, that's, that was me too. I could have, yeah, I, I could imagine. Say. I was dumbfounded. <laughs> and, you know, you know uh, and I, I took it and I, I think I slept with it that night <laughs> with it under my pillow. And, uh, it was just incredible. I had, to, I had to call my wife right away and tell her. And so here I am now. I'm, I'm where I always wanted to be. Mm. And to, to uh, 
make it understand why I chose Jundokan and why I gravitated toward Jundokan was I had known of uh, Yagi Sensei had Mabel Khan and um, Toguchi Sensei had Shorei Khan, and they were also contemporaries of Miyazato Sensei mm-hmm. training with Miyagi Sensei. So I had done some research as much as I could on, on the different organizations. The one thing that struck me about Miyazato Sensei was he was adamant about making sure that everybody knew he never changed anything that he was taught. He never added anything that he was taught to what he was taught. Mm. He said, if you understand Okinawa and Goju, you, you'll understand there is no need to do any of that. Every, what you need is right there already. You just yeah. got to figure out how to, how to unlock it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And Mia Sensei told me early on, he said, there's no secrets in karate. He said, you're the secret. Everything is there. And a good teacher will help you find it. Yeah. But you have to find it. It's it's for you. It's not your karate is your karate. My karate is my karate. Yeah. And uh, so he did in in the short time that I was there, things like that that I picked up was as valuable and sometimes more valuable than the physical training. Mm-hmm. Understanding things like that. These things were never discussed before. Yeah. Um, Japan being kind of a militaristic society and uh, Okinawa culture is much different, very much different, more leaning more toward the Chinese aspect. Yeah. yeah. So their, their, uh, their culture is more Chinese, their uh, festivals and things are more Chinese orientated and the training, absolute the training uh, was more Chinese, one-on-one, open training, uh, that type of thing. Yeah. And um, so that being the case, now that I'm, I'm, uh, I have a position, so to speak, in uh, Jundokan. Now it's my home. I got a place to go, and I've been going there ever since. Every year, sometimes twice a year, and I just went back last. Uh, a year ago, November, and uh, we had a celebration of Miyazato Sensei's anniversary of his passing and also of the dojo. So, uh, uh, unfortunately, I just got uh, some bad news that uh, Miyazato Sensei's wife passed away. Oh. And she was 99 years old. Incredible. Oh. And she still lived upstairs in the dojo. And uh, uh, Yoshihiro uh, Sensei, uh, Miyazato Sensei's son, he's the one that took over the dojo when Miya Sensei passed away. Yeah. He still has that today. Um, so, uh, again, I would go back every year and uh, I encourage my students to go back, mm. to go, not go back, but to go, if yeah. at all possible, at least once. Yeah. Uh, I just, for me, it's just an experience that you can talk about it, you can read about it, but until you put your foot down and realize that you're where it all started, that's mm. uh, that's uh, uh, a feeling that you can only experience yourself. Yeah. And then when you when you start going around and you start talking to people and realizing that. Um, 
karate is so much ingrained in their culture, even much more than in Japan. Remember, Japan got it later on, so yeah. they had their own system, Budo systems of jujitsu, kendo, yaido, etc. So um, karate was an addition, so to speak. So with Okinawans, it was in ingrained in their culture from way, 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 way back. And uh, and um, I forget what year it was, but I was still at this point. I was still with um, training with Higona uh, um, Sensei, and he took a trip to China, and I went on that trip to China with him. Mm. And this was in before I got into Jundokan, so it had to be in the early nineties also. Yeah. And uh, that was an incredible trip because we went to Fuchao. In the Fukia okay. province, yeah, which is where Gojiryu started, yeah, and, uh, we uh, involved in a um, a wushu festival. It was people from all over China were there at this festival, and um, it was incredible because Higona Sensei was treated royally, like royalty. He was catered to, him, and uh, they just uh, accepted all of us as being with him. That you know, we, we were there for the right reasons. Mm. And they actually had competition. And uh, I competed in the competition, which was really wild, because we did kata. Yeah. And I remember I did I did one kata I did with Seipai. Yeah. And to digress a little bit, when we went to the Shaolin Temple, Higuna Sensei called me over to one of the large columns at the Shaolin Temple, and he yeah. pointed at something and he engraved on one of the columns. And he translated for me, he said, Seipai Shu. Not Seipai, but Seipai Shu. Yeah. Eight hands. That's how far back that kata goes. I never knew that. That's interesting. Yeah, Seipai Shu. In, in Gojiru, in, in Okinawan Gojiru, all the kata, the numbered kata always have Shu. Seipai Shu, okay. Seisan Shu, you know, so meaning 18 hands. So yeah. uh, uh, that was that was really something. That, uh, and just a funny sidelight, uh, uh, sideline, and at the Shaolin Temple, we actually saw a group of monks. <laughs> they got into an argument about something. They started really getting on this one guy about something. They were hollering in Chinese and they were pushing this guy and, and pointing fingers at him. It was just so funny because he's these monks, right? <laughs> you know, them. So they could argue and fight also, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, so that was a very, uh, very enlightening trip. And uh, then unfortunately, um, in 1999, Miyazato Sensei passed away. Uh, my wife and I got married in Okinawa. My second wife, Lil. Mm -hmm. and uh, when I wanted to get married, we had we had been together for quite a few years. After my wife passed away, we had been together for ten years before we just I decided that I might want to get married again. Mm -hmm. um, and Lil and I talked about it, and we decided yes, we would get married. And so I said I'd love to get married in Okinawa. So I contacted uh, the dojo. 
and uh, Kenjo-sensei, and I said, we'd like to get married in Okinawa, and could you help me? And Kenjo-sensei speaks, his English is very good. And so he said, of course I will help. So they set up everything for us, the whole wedding, and it was Japanese style. And we got married in Namanoiji. Namanoiji is a beautiful shrine uh, down in the southern part of uh, Naha, and it's right on the water. And Namanoi means over the waves, so it extends out over the water. And the only reason, we were the only non-Japanese uh, uh, to be married there, ever. Oh, wow. Only because Miyazato-sensei interceded. Yeah. He made calls, and of course, it was done. Yeah. So we got married there, and uh, uh, Miyazato-sensei was in the hospital at the time. And he came out of the hospital. This was in October. And uh, he got out of the hospital. He came to the wedding, proposed the toast, and then went back in the hospital and passed away two months after. Wow. But uh, we had, uh, I had, uh, I had a bunch of my students there actually training a group. And so that my group of students were on my wife's side of a, of the uh, of the um, wedding and my dojo family was on the left side on my side so uh, and we had of course um, Kinjo sensei was interpreting yeah. and uh, um, they pre they prepped my wife like the queen of England I mean she had an <laughs> attendant woman that was with her all the time from start to finish making sure everything was, the folds and the, the kimono was right, making sure the makeup was right. And uh, so uh, we went, we got married, and uh, then at the reception in the evening, uh, Miyazato-sensei came and proposed the toast and gave us a beautiful set of uh, Okinawan glassware, which uh, the Okinawans are very famous for their glassware. And then... Uh, Two months later, he passed away, and I was actually in L.A. when he passed, and I was with uh, Sensei Don Warner out there, and um, Lil called me like two in the morning or something, three in the morning, and, and said, I got bad news, you know, Sensei had passed away. So by that time, she had already put in the works of uh, tickets to go to Okinawa and making arrangements for us. She was going to come to L.A. and pick me up and then go to Okinawa for the funeral. Mm. At the time, uh, my students got together and paid for the whole trip for us. Wow. And uh, I had a gentleman that was training with me that was uh, uh, very well off. He paid for business class tickets for me and my wife to go. And uh, then we got to... Naha, and from the airport directly to the funeral. That's how close it was. There was no time to go anywhere else. And we got there just in time for the funeral. And uh, fortunately, and uh, Kinjo Sensei and Taito Sensei picked us up at the airport and took us directly. Unfortunately, we were so sick. You could, I can't even describe to you how sick we were. 
we were running temperatures of 103, 104, 105, and oh. sick. And I would get better, then Lo would get sick, then Lo would get better, I would get sick. And it went back and forth like this, and it was miserable. So I did get to go with the family to uh, walk up the steps and burn incense and and uh, pay my respects. So it was an unbelievable sight. That whole area down there, when you go down Cokeside Dory, which is the main street, at the one end, the far end, is where Jundokan is, just off the main street. And at the opposite end, going down Cokeside Dory, is a big traffic circle. And off to the right is uh, a beach, Naminoi Beach. And that's where Naminoi Shrine is. That whole area where the shrine was, was packed with people. Unbelievable. I mean, packed. An interesting thing that I saw that really touched me, really touched me deep, was a very famous um, karate man. I won't mention his name, but big, tough, strong, uh, actually had tears in his eyes. Wow. So that's how much Miyazato Sensei meant to Okinawan Karate. He was the yeah, chairman yeah. of a lot of things. <laughs> Too many things, I think. But <laughs> he hated go, going to meetings. And uh, he, I went a few times with him to a couple of things. And he couldn't wait to get out of there. He just, he wasn't comfortable doing stuff like that. He was very, yeah. uh, not a showy person, not for the uh, glitz and glamour and all of that. And so uh, he would always keep looking at his watch, you know. Is it time to go? Is it time to go? And um, so he, um, the funeral went off. And uh, actually, uh, Yasuda sense a little was so sick that she had to stay in, the, in their apartment. And Yasuda sense came and got me and he took me to the dojo. And we went upstairs to... Uh, Miyazato Sensei's house, and uh, they had a shrine set up, where a family shrine, and uh, I got to pay my last respects there, and burn incense for Sensei, and uh, uh, very private moment, just me and Miyazato Sensei, and me and um, yes, well, him too, Miyazato yeah. Sensei, me and yeah. uh, Yasuda Sensei, and um, very very, I was so so happy that I got a chance to do that. Yeah. And uh, um, when I first went there, when I first went to uh, Okinawa, Yasu, uh, Miyazato Sensei and Iha Sensei, uh, Iha Sensei and Miyazato Sensei were both contemporaries training with Miyagi Sensei. Right? Iha Sensei was a very small man, but dynamic, unbelievable. The strength that little guy had was just incredible. And uh, they took me to uh, Miyazato Sensei's Oaxaca, his grave, tomb. Just the three of us. And we went, we took some snacks and some uh, soda and some beer. And we went to visit Miyazato Sensei, uh, Miyagi Sensei. And when we got there, the first thing you always do is you clean up around the, the tomb, you know, sweep it up mm -hmm. or pick up stuff, whatever. And then opened up... Uh, 
a beer and put it there and some snacks for Miyagi-sensei. And then um, Iya-sensei introduced me to Miyagi-sensei, which is just, uh, you can't describe the feeling, but he's actually there, you know. And uh, this is um, Sensei Chuck Maroon. He came to train with us and uh, we wanted to come and visit you and say, pay everybody, blah, 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 you know. And then uh, just we stayed there for a while and talked and uh, then left and went back to the dojo. But it was so, so normal. It wasn't like it was a, a stage thing or anything. It was something you normally yeah. do, you know. So uh, anytime I would go back after that, I would always try to go to Miyagi Sensei's Oaxaca. And he, his uh, tomb is on way, way up. Uh, high on a hill and uh, I can't get there anymore because it, physically I can't do it but, but it's way up there and uh, Miyazato Sensei is not that far up it's uh, kind of on ground level so this last time I went I visited visited, visited Miyazato Sensei but couldn't couldn't um, physically go to see Miyagi Sensei but uh, that's always and agenda, part of the agenda when I go to Okinawa to visit. And um, so every time I would go back, it would seem like it would be, um, you would think after all these years and everything, it would be repetitious and repetitious. And really, it, it never was. It was always something developed that yeah. you sort of, kind of miss somewhere along the line. You go, whoa, wait a minute. You know, uh, I'm always, I'm a firm believer in, um, in, in kata, we only have 12. Mm -hmm. uh, some styles have a lot more than that. Yeah. We have 12. And when you break it down, two of those are breathing exercises, sanshin and tensho. Mm -hmm. Two of those are developed by Miyagi-sensei to teach in school systems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we basically have eight fighting cuts, so to speak. And um, the three main ones are Sanchin, Sanseru, Seisan. And interestingly, uh, Weichi Sensei, the founder of Weichi Ryu, Hang mm -hmm. Noon, he studied in the same city as Miyagi Sensei in, Fu in Fuzhou, but in a different part of the city with a different teacher. Mm. The three main kata of Huechiryu are exactly the same. Sanchin says it. So, uh, great, uh, great connection there. And um, so, my thing with kata has always been that kata grows. If, you're, if you have an understanding of Geksai Daichi when you, when you first learned it, and it hasn't changed your understanding of hasn't changed 10 years later, you're not making any progress. <laughs> mm. You're not making any progress. Mm -hmm. Simply because you grow, your understanding should grow, your ability to interpret the possibilities within that kata should grow. So if you're not, if it's the same now as it was then, obviously you're not making progress. You're not, yeah. you're not understanding it. And um, the term bunkai has become a catchword now 
it's used a lot by a lot of different people. A lot of different yeah. styles. All of a sudden, bunkai becomes whoa, the, the buzzword. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, bunkai just means to analyze, obviously. And yeah. uh, when you look at tra- easily translated to analyze. So to me, analyzation changes with the circumstances. A tall person, short person, heavy, slow, fast, knowledge-wise, how much information does he have, how much do I have? So Mm -hmm. every time I'm training, my analyzation could change of the situation. So uh, Oyo, we have uh, Kion Bunkai, uh, Oyo Bunkai, Rinsoku Bunkai. Mm-hmm. So Oyo is where your own ideas start to come in, mm-hmm. and um, so now the interpretation, the analyzation is first, and then the application of what you analyze comes next. Now I've analyzed it, I've done a quick analyzation of the situation, how do I respond to it? Mm-hmm. So Bunkai is not carved in stone, it's not constant, it changes. Yeah with every situation. And when I trained in New York City, uh, I would go to train sometimes at Aaron Banks's dojo, who was the big uh, promoter of the time, right? And he had he was on Broadway in New York City, had his dojo on Broadway. We used to get Broadway dancers would come in and train with us just for the exercise, for the stretching and, you know? Yeah. And, uh, they would pick up a kata in about a half hour. I mean, yeah. that's what they do. They do yeah. that for a living. So my my thought always has been about kata. We only have 12. So if you're doing what the, the Broadway dancers doing, you're copying movements, learning a pattern, learning a, a set routine. And as soon as you get the routine down, you move on to the next one. So that means if we only have 12 kata, to my way of thinking, you could get the whole system down in about a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're all set, right? Yeah. So obviously, kata is a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, uh, kata has always been my specialty. I competed in, in kumite in the early years because that's basically all it was. And uh, uh, I was never a talented fighter. I was a very strategic fighter <laughs> in the sense that I wanted to hit, not get hit. Yeah, hit <laughs> and get out. Yeah, very defensive. But so kata became when kata started coming into um, to the forefront, so to speak, in competition. I started doing more of that, and my feeling has always been that uh, uh, moving on from my physical abilities is going to take me from one stage to another. And uh, competition is for the young and strong. Uh, kumite. Kata you can do until you can't stand up anymore. Yeah. You, you know, and even now that I'm physically, uh, I have to use a walker or a wheelchair, I still can do kata. I can do tensho, I can do sanchin, yeah. and I can still do kata in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I still go over it constantly. Yeah. And I'm still teaching, so I still have to keep things fresh. And every once in a while, I'll get stuck to and, and I'll have to say, I'll get back to you on that. I'll, I got to check it out. Mm. But uh, so um, kata became more and more my uh, my uh, emphasis. And yeah. this uh, this um this whole COVID-19 things really brought 
Cutter out for me. Um, you know, you you see styles that that don't do any cutter all of a sudden taking on cutter and seeing the value in it and yeah it, it, it's it's uh i think people are really starting to realize the benefits of cutter now mm. um which we've been saying obviously karate people have been saying for years but now everyone's kind of jumping on the bandwagon it's nice to see <laughs> <laughs> it is it is it is and it's um my and I don't want to sound negative, but my problem with what's going on today, and I'm vocal about it. Everybody knows my position, is that uh, in uh, say in WKF competition, yeah, they're incredible athletes. I mean, the yeah. time and effort they put in is just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, we never put that kind of effort into it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we trained obviously, but but I mean, they're dedicated and. Mm. Um, the problem is, is that it's, to me, it's evolved into a martial ballet, so to speak. Yeah. Um, the essence of it, like they do bunkai, now it has become oh. a big part of the competition. Yeah. And it's incredible, but it's choreographed. It's, yeah. They hire professional choreographers to come in. And it's very entertaining. I mean, extremely entertaining. And athletically, it's, they do some incredible stuff. Yeah. But it's it's to me it's not bunkai. They should give it a different name. Yeah, I would, it, I would agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, not to take away from anything or anybody, it's just that that it has evolved into so much drama now. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the opening when they walk out, it's robotic, and when they yeah. announce the kata, it's screaming, and the ki is no longer the the sudden uh, sudden eruption. But now there's yeah. screaming and long yeah. going on. So now it's evolved into theater, so to speak, drama, mm-hmm. and uh, facial expressions that are obviously contrived. Yeah. And uh, so I just, there's a place for that, but not to the exclusion of dental karate, to me. Why do you have to? Why do you have to forget about the origins and the foundation, in order to look at another aspect of it? Mm. In in all my years, and I've competed for a long time in uh, U.S. and in Canada, quite a lot in Canada. Uh, I never trained for competition. I just train. Yeah. Now, now they're doing cross training. They're doing training for this. When I when I first started out, I bought a a judo gi for $12. It was a bear brain. <laughs> I don't even think they make them anymore. <laughs> 12 bucks. Now you have to have a gi for kata. Then you have yeah. a different one for kumite, a different yeah. one for walking around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's become style. Yeah, it's, it's a business really, isn't it? It's, that's, yeah, that's, absolutely. that's what it is now. Yeah, it's, it's a business. Yeah. And I get, the, I get that aspect also. Yeah. But, but, to me, I'm I'm looking for how you can separate and not confuse the two. Mm. Okinawa now has, in my estimation, has become very commercial, very commercial. Really, they have a they have a recently formed group, a travel group that specializes in karate excursions, so to speak. Yeah. Now instead of instead of getting a letter of introduction, you contact them. They'll set up training for you with 
a number of teachers that are willing to take in foreign students. And of course, the sightseeing tour, you know, you can sign up for that and you can sign up for this and sign up for that. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking it because Okinawa, their main source of income is, tr is uh, um, tourism. Yeah. They don't have natural resources except for pineapples or whatever. But, mm -hmm. I, and I understand that totally. I guess my, my uh, problem, if you want to call it a problem, is that they're lumping everything together as karate. Yeah. And it's not. It's not. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you convince a non-Budo uh, person, karate person, that there is a separation? Mm. They lump everything together. So to them, this is what karate has evolved. And I've always been smart enough to understand that you could take your karate training and put it into different areas, use it in different areas. Competition being one of them. Yeah. You go out, you walk on the mat, and I'm looking at somebody I hadn't seen before. I have no idea what this person is going to do. You know, uh, now it's my test to test my training. How is it, how is it going to work against, in the dojo, I train with people that I know, who know mm. me, know, you know, this person I don't know. How's how's my training going to work? Mm -hmm. So I get that, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with competition. I think it shouldn't should not be emphasized because it's a short window there that you can do it, <clears throat> and that um, you know Sensei McCarthy is always uh, making sure that people understand that that understanding the past is how you understand the now and the future. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't understand and embrace the past, you're missing a big chunk of what's going on and how you got here. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see that worries me is that uh, even in Okinawa, the it seems like the trend is going more and more toward the uh, Olympic competition and the yeah. world competition. And... Uh, my student, uh, I have a student, Domingo Llanos, and Domingo trained with me since he was 14 years old. Constance trained with me, still training with me. Of course, he's a lot older and he's got his own, had his own old dojo for quite some time. His son has grown up and is following in his footsteps. Domingo has one, been one of the most successful competitors. He was the first non-Japanese to take a silver medal in the world championships and Wuko world championships in Kata. All he did was he didn't train for that. He took his karate training and put yeah, it in that it, arena. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was a six-time AAU Kata champion. He was three-time All-American AAU, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And all just karate training. So I, I think that Sometimes a lot of this other stuff is introduced to keep people interested. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. You think so? And yeah, definitely. I, I get that also to a certain extent, but also in our dojos, my dojo and um, my son's dojo, uh, Chad's dojo, we don't have a lot of training equipment. We have Hojondo, we have Kigo, Chishi, uh, Nigirigami. Uh, Kongo again. But 
I, I've always been, uh, Kigu directly relates to, uh, Hojuwundo directly relates to what you're going to be training. Within the uh, Hojuwundo exercises, direct, uh, directly relate to your kata and yeah. to your training that you're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily build like a bodybuilder. It no. builds it's the fun- muscles fun- a certain way for, for kata. Yeah. And the same with Jumbi Undo. Uh, Jumbi, Jumbi means to prepare. So mm-hmm. Jumbi Undo means to prepare, get ready for training. So it's not just warm-up, but there are exercises in Jumbi Undo that relate directly to your kata training. Yeah. So those two things are a necessity, so to speak. But I always felt that the more outside um, um, implements you use for training, the less you rely on your own resources. It's just my my own take. Mm-hmm. And obviously people have a different uh, opinion than that, and I understand that also. But uh, like I said when we first started speaking that, uh, uh, I'm never. I wasn't a team person, and I don't mean there's anything wrong with teams. Teams are fine for team people, not for me. So for me in the dojo, for me in the dojo, it's the same thing. I want to use what I got. Yeah. When I walk out in the street, I can't carry anything with me except my hands and my feet mm-hmm. and my brains. I like right? that attitude. Yeah. I think it's a good attitude for anybody. Sorry, I think it's a good attitude for anybody to have, the attitude that you have to use what's to hand. Absolutely. It's, it's always good to have the right equipment, but it's also also good to be inventive and to learn to look around you yes. and think about, be Absolutely. creative, what can you use? It's yeah. good training for everybody. Absolutely. And it isn't always hand and foot, <laughs> you know, whatever's no. convenient. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story that uh, I think you probably know that I would, maybe you know, maybe you don't, that I was uh, on the KISS, uh, KISS, um, the rock group KISS. Yeah. I, I was security on the 1980 tour. The, oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was Gene Simmons' bodyguard. And oh. uh, we were always concerned, we were always concerned that we did the European tour and we started in Italy, in Rome. And being in Europe, we were concerned about that the band might be a convenient target for some dissident group to get some publicity by attacking them, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or causing a disturbance. So there were four bodyguards, one for each one of the guys in the band. I was Gene's bodyguard. So... Uh, Inez Barreto, he was Paul's bodyguard. So uh, everything went fine. And our last our last show in Italy, I think, was Genoa. So we were in a velodrome. And there was a stage set up at the infield, one end of the infield, in this velodrome. And so we had to band all... We were in a in a sort of like a... You walk down some steps into an area where there were dressing rooms. So we had the band all ready to get. And of course, they, they always like to pump up the audience, you know, make them wait, make them wait, make them wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the people are chanting, you know. So just at the peak when you think they're ready to uh, to explode, that's when the band would come out. 
So I'm looking, I'm at the top of the stairway and I'm looking out into the infield and I see uh, the road manager, George Stewart, come running toward me. So now it's all dark out there. And I, I can see him just in a little bit of light. And he's saying, you know, to, that, to, to get the band back into the dressing room. And sure enough, all of a sudden, across the field comes this group of people running. <laughs> and we know they're not fans. They're not coming to say hello and shake hands. So <laughs> uh, at that time, there was uh, we had to get physical. And we did get physical with some of them. In the meantime, the, uh, the police were coming. Uh, Italian police were coming. And... Uh, we did get physical with him, and some of the physicality came from grabbing something that was close by and using it to uh, keep them back, right, flailing back and forth. So what that's you said, that's... you're exactly right. Yeah. And this that's... is part of training also, to teach yeah. people to be that aware mm -hmm. that you might have to grab something. Yeah. You know? And we're living in some very, very strange times, and uh, uh, they're not, they're not uh, safe times. They're very dangerous times. And so we have to even be more aware now that uh, you can't think, you know, like during the Boxer Rebellion, a lot of Chinese martial arts died because they thought they could the bullets wouldn't uh, affect them. And yeah. they found out they were wrong. And we have to be realistic about that also, I think, especially during this time. Mm. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, of course, a lot of us always use, I do, Many people do, you know, that karate should be a lifestyle. And yeah. uh, yes, it should be, and it can be, but a lot, everybody isn't involved for that reason. They're involved for a lot of different reasons. Mm. And I always tell my students, every so often, reevaluate why you're still training. It might have changed. Your, your, why you started might have changed for why you're still here. You know, and act accordingly. Yeah. That, uh, uh, some people start for self-defense. I started only because I was intrigued with it being one person and being able to practice the kata and stuff. That's what intrigued me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was always a skinny kid. Oh, I lost him there. Sensei, can you hear us? Am I back? Yes, yeah, you're back. Yes, yeah. Sensei, you are back. Okay. We are yeah. we are here missed, with you. I missed the question. That's okay. We were just saying, Greg was just saying, what a that was such an interesting story, weren't you, Greg? Oh. Yeah. Just, just just the fact that, you know, you, you got into karate to and you and you really wanted to train in Okinawa and, and the fact that you got to do that plus you got that whole experience afterwards is is amazing. And I I, I don't you know, you were saying that Okinawa has become very commercialized and, and how people people train there now is different to the way you do it. But I think, you know, no one is going to get that same experience from doing it that way today. Yeah. And I, it's incredible. It's just, it's changed and it obviously change is normal. Um, change is, um, you shouldn't change just for the sake of change. There should be a reason. Yeah that you move forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the future really is 
especially in Okinawa. Mm. Um, that, uh, you know, uh, a guy named James, James uh, an English guy, he started a dojo bar. Uh, in yeah. The, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that became the Mecca. That's where yeah. everybody went. And unfortunately, he had to go out of business. That, yeah, uh, I heard. Yeah, but I think he's going to regroup somewhere along the line. But uh, again, uh, things like that, like that, uh, the dojo bar coming into play. And uh, James became a very uh, good resource for people who didn't have uh, introductions to Okinawa. You know, he yeah. would uh, he would introduce you to people and he became um, a very, a very uh, reliable guy to contact uh, yeah. to get your introductions into Okinawa. And uh, he did a lot, a lot of good for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think he'll regroup. But yeah. um, the um, uh, commercial aspect that's going on now, you know, I think back when I started judo in New York City and, um, well, when I training in New York City, uh, commercialism was such a nasty word. I mean, you didn't do those type of things. That was sacrilegious. Mm. You know, uh, Jerome Mackey had a, a, a judo school and he was the pariah. This guy was looked down upon commercial. He charged so much for lessons and he'd bring Japanese guys in and, you know, and uh, he was the shame of, of at the time. He was just not, when we look back on it, he was just way ahead of his time. He wasn't. Yeah. He yeah. just knew things that we didn't know. So uh, hopefully. May I ask you, may I ask you, Sensei, what sure. do you think is the right balance then in commercialism in terms of working in karate, earning a living? And what, what do you think is the right balance? That's a good question because there should be a balance, obviously, I think. Mm. Number one, Miyagi-sensei was very wealthy. So he didn't have to work. He didn't have to, didn't have to pay to, to keep his lights on or put food on his table. Yeah. He didn't have to charge. Nowadays, uh, especially outside of Okinawa, uh, most people in Okinawa who do karate have jobs. They work at, at uh, a profession or a job. Outside Okinawa, that's not necessarily true. A lot of people make a living from a dojo. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I think the balance to me is um, that fair exchange is no robbery. If you're giving good, solid instruction and yeah. charging a reasonable price, mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. I no. completely agree with that. Yeah. That's always sounded to me to be fair. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's to me is the balance. The landlord doesn't want to know that you're a dedicated karate person and you can't charge money for this. He just wants his rent. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's got to pay his property taxes and, you know, got to keep the lights on, etc. So there is that. To me, that's the balance is giving good, solid instruction, not stuff that you made up, but mm -hmm. solid background and solid foundation and giving good instruction for a reasonable price. And that, to me, is a good balance. Yeah, I agree. And we're, once karate got outside of Okinawa, karate changed completely, even from going from Okinawa to mainland. Karate was popularized by competition. Mm -hmm. 
in Japan, in mainland Japan, there's a kata for everything. Yeah. There's an interesting We've heard this book from, about, a, from a number of There's people, an interesting yeah. book about kata. I'm trying to think of what that. I, I have the book and I've read it. Um, there's a, in Japan, there's a way, how do you do flower arranging? How do you do brushwork? Yeah. How do you do this? How do you do that? So this is kata. How do you mm -hmm. do this? Mm. This one of the stories in the, in this book is about when Japan had to surrender uh, after the Second World War was over. They had to surrender, mm. and there was such confusion about this that that the American uh, nego negotiation team was trying to negotiate with Japan on how we're going to do this surrender, and they were running into problems, of, you know, and. They didn't understand why. Why is this such a big deal? You just quit. You sign. You put your name down. We quit. We're not at war anymore. Whatever. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, when it came down to, they finally were questioning why this is such a problem. The answer from the Japanese negotiation team was, "Shikata nai, shikata nai me. We don't have a kata for it. We don't know how to do it." Yeah. <laughs> We want to do it, but just nobody's ever taught us how to do it. Yeah, <laughs> and and that that could be a true story, or could be uh, just to make a point. But the point being is that Okinawan culture, Japanese culture, are two different things. Mm. If it was the Okinawans, they go, "Oh, okay, we're done. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. Right. Hope we can hope we can remain friends." Right, but the Japanese didn't know how to do it, so. Uh, I think this is part of what's going on now with the transitions of sport karate and and uh, nento karate. Karate was popularized through competition. Uh, in the early years, it was only competition. That's all we didn't know about this Okinawan training, how they trained in the dojo, and what they trained for. And uh, we knew you trained to get ready to go into the next competition. And there's a good side and a bad side. Obviously, mm -hmm. the good side is that popularized karate throughout the world, or at least that aspect of karate. Yeah. And the other part is that the dental karate, the original karate, was being lost. Mm -hmm. So there was a trade-off. And uh, they've never made the transition to separate, nobody's ever come up with how do we separate the two and keep both. And understanding that, like we talked about a while ago, that it's become more drama and more theater, uh, martial theater than it has actual relation to what karate actually is. Mm. And I think some people have trouble uh, understanding that, um, and it's just my own opinion, that, that they don't understand that traditionalist, so to speak. I don't like that word. I don't use that word. I use mm. authentic. Traditional to me has gotten a, uh, to mean anything that even resembles what originally uh, was karate, you know. So I use authentic rather than original, uh, traditional. But traditional people are against or knocking what's going on today, and we're not. Nobody I know that that thinks the way I do is is downplaying anything that's going on today. 
It's just that we don't want it confused with what karate yeah. really is. That's yeah. all. You know? Yeah. Like I said before, that I have a great deal of admiration for him. Incredible. Um, my friend down in Florida, uh, Sensei Robert Young, uh, he has produced some terrific uh, athletes, karate athletes, and on a world level, and continues to do so. But he teaches Okinawa and Goji Ryu, dental karate. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the other thing, he makes adjustments along the way. In other words, you don't go into a competition to lose. You're going to win. Yeah. And the way you win is you find out what the rules are and how do I adapt to those rules. Yeah. Either that or don't go. I mean, yeah. that's be stupid to go to to go so you're going to lose. And but it's always what what are the rules? How do I adapt those rules to what I do? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think once we can come to terms with that, and uh, there is a uh, the Shinko Kai in Okinawa is a group dedicated toward to the end result of of keeping and maintaining the old ways the dental karate mm -hmm. and basically that's a part that's a group that we're Junior Khan is affiliated with presently and uh, I, I think that uh, I hope anyway that eventually people on both side, both ends of the spectrum will come to accept each other and uh, to uh, work toward each other's goals of maintaining what the essence of what karate really is to uh, what it's developed, uh, the one aspect that it's developed that's been popularized. Yeah. And we can only hope, I don't know. The thing is, is that uh, uh, there's a, a cultural thing between the Westerners, the Okinawans, and the Japanese—three distinct cultures. Yeah, and so that's a big, a big leap. <laughs> you know, and it's even funny because I used to kid with me as sensei. I kept saying, "Sensei, we have to change the terminology. We have to use Okinawan language for karate, not just Japanese. We should use Okinawan." You go, "Oh, I think yeah, good idea," but I don't think so. <laughs> it would be too much of a change yeah. but when you when you use Okinawan terminology even at that point things you interpret things differently mm. just by using Okinawan term, terminology some of the uh, terms used in Okinawan goji ryu muchimi chiru chan chan etc these are terms that don't translate outside of Okinawa very well very difficult to translate mm. because they're more of a feeling, uh, a physical feeling, than they are uh, trans translatable words, so to speak. Yeah. And the essence of Okinawa and Goju are these terms. It is what, when I watch somebody, uh, interestingly enough, other styles have adopted some of our kata, they've put it into their style of karate. Yeah. Goju Ryu has never, Okinawan Goju has never adopted anybody else's kata, ever. Mm. But when I look at somebody else doing an adopted version of one of our kata, what's missing are these elements that I'm saying. Muchimi, 
Chiro no Chancha, Gamako. All of these things that make it go Jukata. Wow, I don't think I've heard of this before. Have I not heard of this before? I think it's 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 like if it's like if I you know I I could go and and learn you know the routine of of Sapai for example, but you know. I, for me, for me to then perform it in front of you, it would be missing everything you've just said because I haven't, I haven't learned what it is. I've just learned, like you said, a, a routine, a dance routine, essentially. I would love to. I would love to know these meanings. I would love to. I would love to do something where I could see these things demonstrated. I really would. I really would. Uh, um, for instance, uh, I'm just. Looking at notes, um, words like chin kuchi, kamaku, kinkotsu, hente, muchimi, atifa, shinsi. These are all Okinawan terms. And they all relate directly to Okinawan goju to training. Yeah. These are elements that are ingrained in the kata that. When somebody copies, they're only copying a pattern, yeah. not the elements that make it a goju cut. Mm -hmm. So if you're taking that, copying one of our patterns, you're doing what the Broadway dancers do. Yeah. They copy a routine. Mm -hmm. Step here, step there, turn, pivot. So when I look at somebody doing kata, and they, they say, say unchin, say pai, kurupa, I'm looking for those elements. If I don't see them, then they're just doing, they're copying a pattern. They don't understand the kata. Yeah. And this, it's kind of like uh, making an omelet without eggs. I mean, you can call it whatever you want, but it's not, till you put the eggs in, it's not an omelet, as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. And oh, it's, so interesting. I don't mean it as a criticism either. I don't mean no, 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 but like it makes it makes perfect sense to me. You know, it's like I like that analogy actually of the omelet. That makes that makes sense. I'm gonna steal that from you. <laughs> I'm not. I, like the, I have to ask a question. I know. Um, do you guys study gojudo? Is that your main? No, 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 no. That's oh, okay. What I mean. That's what. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, if 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 I was to copy, you know, if I was to learn. Sapai or something, you know, off a YouTube video. I might learn the pattern, but like you said, I I wouldn't have that. Huh. Everything you just said, it would be a routine. It wouldn't be a kata. Right, right. Yeah. And again, yeah. again, it's, uh, I emphasize it. It's, I don't say that as criticism. I just say it as a fact of, yeah. of, you know, uh, a matter of a fact. That, yeah, uh, absolutely. And on. Uh, the, there's only two styles of Nahate in existence, Gojudu and Weichidu. Mm. Everything else is uh, Shurite or Tamarite or a combination thereof. Yeah. Gojudu was the first style of Karate to be given an official name. That was in 1933. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, that's when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so it was given the name. And originally, there were no names. Uh, if you studied Te in Naha, you studied Naha Te. Mm -hmm. If you're training in uh, Shuri City, you studied, you were doing Shuri Te or Tamari Te. No given. But when Miyagi Sensei sent uh, Shinzato Sensei to mainland Japan to demonstrate, 
he was asked the obvious question uh, the Japanese would ask, what style is this? And it took him, uh, set him back a little bit because he didn't, there was no style name. Mm. So the only thing, he quickly said, Hankoryu, Hankoryu. Hanko means half hard. So his thought was, well, what we do is half of it's hard, half of it's soft. So mm -hmm. Then he came back and discussed it with Miyagi-sensei, and um, they said, oh, well, it's close, but uh, Miyagi-sensei's Bible, so to speak, was the Bobishi, which, uh, as you know, Sensei Pat McCarthy has translated uh, yeah. uh, and brought it into... Uh, brought it into uh, existence outside of Okinawa. There's an Okinawan Bubishi and there's a Chinese Bubishi. But the Bubishi was Miyagi-sensei's Bible. In the Bubishi, there's a section called uh, Hapo Kempo. It's the eight laws of the fist. The third saying down in that eight, eight um, laws are inhalation and exhalation is the essence of karate. In other words, inhale, exhale. Uh, this is how we live. When you stop inhaling and exhaling, you're dead. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the essence of everything is inhalation. And goju don't don't meant um, hard, soft, the concept of a balance, always a good balance. What we talked about, the balance, where's the balance in, in the uh, karate today? There's a balance of uh, everything should have some training too much is not good. You can become stale. Training not enough, same same uh, mm -hmm. result. You can uh, get so you can get so cold you'll die, and if you don't get enough heat, you'll also die. It, you know the end result is you can love someone so much it becomes obsessive and more hateful than hell than love. So there's got to be that balance in there. And balance to me in training is continuity is the key. Three times a week, an hour each time is much better than training uh, full blast for three weeks in a row and then taking off for three weeks. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. So there's that balance. Continuity is one of the keys to successful training. And uh, uh, the balance is where Miyagi-sensei sought the balance between the hard and the soft. So if you see, Goju-ryu starts with Sanchinkata, very hard, very strong uh, exhalation. Yeah. And the last training is Tensho, soft, circular. So our kata starts with Sanchin and ends with Tensho. And Tensho comes again from the Bubishi, Miyagi-sensei yeah. devises kata uh, from what they call Rokishu, which is a six-hand technique. Mm -hmm. So the Rokishu became Tensho. And if you see the Bubishi, it shows you the exact hand placement yeah. of Tensho, which is really interesting. And uh, Tensho was um, Ia-sensei's uh, main kata, Tensho and Suparente, was uh, Iyasensei's main kata. So I spent quite a bit of time with him whenever I could to get down the, the, the finer points of both of those kata. 
and he was very strict on hand position, where the where the hands were, where the thumb and the fingers were, and uh, so I I got that part of it in parts of Super Empe that I've seen done a number of different ways, and I'm sure that uh, everybody has a reason why they do it a little bit different or whatever. Uh, basically, because people are different. You know, they interpret things a little bit different. And with Miyazato-sensei, what intrigued me about him, like I said before, was that he didn't change anything, he didn't add anything. So the the situation always is, is that when Miyagi-sensei passed away, his idea of Goju-ryu passed away with him. He's the only person that can say, yes, that's what I meant, or no, that's not mm. what I meant. Yeah. After that, it's everybody's idea or interpretation of what they thought he said. Two students of mine, two students of mine sat in a a uh, uh, lecture given by Miyazato Sensei in the Jondogan, sat next side by side to each other, and when they came back, they told me two different stories. They were sitting next to each other, <laughs> not not drastic, but just yeah. little. Yeah, they were arguing about. No, he didn't. No, he didn't say that. He said, you know. So now, imagine if that's the case. Imagine over all of these years since Miyagi Sensei passed away, mm-hmm. how these things have gotten so, you know, uh, so far out of whack to what he actually said. Yeah. And like I said, what in, what intrigued me about Miyazato Sensei is that because he didn't add anything and he didn't change anything, that's probably as close as I'm going to ever get. To what Miyagi Sensei actually meant. Mm. That's just my take on it. Yeah. And it doesn't mean to say that everybody else is wrong. No, it's just their interpretation. Yeah. You know, if you look at um, Meibu Khan, uh, Yagi Sensei added some kata. Shoei uh, Khan, uh, he added some kata. And so, which is fine, not, not a criticism. But uh, I like the idea that we're getting as close to what originally was meant. And uh, that's why we're so kind of protective about trying to keep that intact. And once you lose that, it's like a language which bothers me about Okinawa is that their language was taken away from them. Mm. And uh, the language is the identity of the country. That is the identity. And yeah. once you take the language away, then you're taking their culture away at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, fortunately, un- unfortunately, the older people are dying. The younger people have not much interest in the old language and the old customs. They're kind of falling in line with what's going on today. So there's this big gap of uh, uh, older people passing younger people coming in with their own ideas and with their own direction. And we're looking for some way to make sure that the two can coincide or coexist with each other. Yeah. Hopefully. It sounds like we could have another entire whole conversation about Okinawan culture and language. Mm. And I think that would be a, that would be a very fascinating Oh, yeah. so we I'd could love spend. To. <laughs> I'd love to. 
I don't speak. Uh, my Japanese is is uh, Sensei Pat is very fluent in Japanese, and he's fluent in the sense that that uh, he knows all the slang terms and all also and the correct <laughs> the correct yes. language and all the others. Yeah. Yes, we and, had uh, we had a, an illustration of that. Yeah, we <laughs> <did>. <laughs> told him. Well, he you know, and I know that he's never had a loss for words, and so. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I've known Sensei Pat since he was a teenager, and uh, I've always admired admired his work. He's done so much research, incredible, and he's never stopped researching. He's still doing it, and still, yeah. uh, you know, very active in his. Uh, in, around the world and uh, what I like about what he's done he's um, he's not style orientated no he's karate oriented yeah. yeah what he has to offer is for everybody anybody yeah and that's what uh, really interests me about his work mm. is that he's, he's made that he's made that uh, uh, footprint in karate, where everything he does appeals to anybody who's interested in, in martial arts, and yeah. again, not even not even just karate. Too. So, uh, we're since he's moved to the states, we're in constant com uh, communication with each other, usually on a daily basis. A lot about what's going on today in our country, and uh, about uh, similarities of of uh, our problems with China, and I said, everybody, you got to go read The Art of War again. It tells you <laughs> in The Art of War is very, you can see the patterns evolving, you know, it's not, it's not hidden away. It's not secret. So we talk a lot about that, but uh, uh, a few months ago before this uh, uh, virus thing set in, I was out in LA and it was with the um, uh, Sensei Pat, Don Warner, Damon Farkas, myself, Kent Moyer, and we had an incredible weekend. It was really, really a great time. And uh, I'm going to do that again as soon as we're uh, we can travel again. I want to yeah. get back out there. It's just, and of course, when we get together, it's always it's always karate. It's never about <laughs> much else. But uh, and we always rely on on Sensei Pat's uh, research to uh, always learning something new. It's great. Mm. But I've enjoyed this very much. And, uh, oh, likewise. Appreciate likewise. you asking we'll, me. We'll and, definitely do it again. Oh, any time. Yeah, anytime. I'd, love to, I'd love, like like Sue said, a, a conversation about Okinawan history and culture. Yeah, I'm always up to listen about that. Yeah, that would be have very you, interesting. Have you been yeah. to Okinawa? No, I never have. I, I, oh, I'm hoping to. Go. to. Yeah, I'm hoping to. You yeah. will, you will thoroughly enjoy yourself. You know, I trained in mainland Japan also, and yeah. I don't want to. Again, I always have to emphasize, not criticism. It's just different, different. Mm -hmm. uh, Japan very um, strict, very strict, strict discipline, and mm -hmm. that's that's fine. I, I I appreciate that. It's their way of life. It's the way they live. It's their culture. Okinawa is much more relaxed. Um, Okinawa to me was um, a very strong discipline, but a relaxed discipline. Yeah. Uh, 
Japan is much more rigid. And I understand both and I appreciate both. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just, uh, to me, when Okinawa say family and Japan says family, it, it, they're both right and they're both correct, but it's a little bit different. You know, once, once Miyazato Sensei accepted the fact that I was there for the right reasons, that I was, my intentions were correct, that uh, everything just seemed to open up. And uh, I just, uh, such a warm feeling. And then when I got married, what they did, how they put that whole thing together was amazing. Mm. The reception, everything. It was all done for me. And it was done as a family. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was going to tell you, at the reception, uh, a cultural thing, right? At the reception, they had us up on stage behind the curtain. This was after the wedding at the reception. And we were dressed in Western clothes. And so they introduced each one of us. And uh, she had a person who went through her background and another person who read my background. And then they introduce us and they bring us off stage. So as we come off stage, I let my wife go first in front of me and walk. We went to church. And the guy that was interpreting for us, uh, Stuart Azuma, he says, oh, so... They get married Japanese style, but you see, he's still he's still Western style. He let his wife go first. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the big joke. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Where, I'm sorry, you told me you where were you in England? We're in Somerset, right down in the southwest of England. Uh, where is that in relation to? Somewhere I would know London or something like that. Um, we're you know, about big... how how far? About two hours west of London, probably. Something yeah, like that. Lo so London is over to the the lower part on the the right hand side, and uh, yeah. we're further down, further south, and on the left hand side looking at yeah. it. So we're down in the West Country where we all talk like that, and when you know, well, no it's... one knows, no one knows, no where one we knows, are. <laughs> no one knows. Uh -huh. We're we're near um we're near Bath. Uh, okay. Yes. Um, yeah. so that's a very well-known city. We're near Bristol and Bath. Yes. We're about half an hour yeah. south of there. Yeah. 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 Um, years ago, Aaron Banks um, was a great promoter. He promoted so many great events. He had a show called The Oriental World of Self-Defense. And it was a lot, of, a lot of stuff. Some of it was kind of strange in a way. Mm. Like a guy that caught bullets in his mouth and uh, <laughs> things that, you know. And then there was the karate part. There was the, uh, yeah. the authentic part. So I traveled with that show. And we did four shows in England. We did uh, Birmingham, Liverpool, London, and uh, Manchester. And in London, yeah. we did it at Albert Hall. It oh, was wow. a big show that we did at Albert Hall. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Wait, it gets better. So now in Albert Hall, my part of the show, we I finished the first half of the show. And then we took an intermission and then the second half of the show. So my yeah. part was, I ended the first part of the show. So at the time, I was drinking stout. I love stout. So in the back of Albert Hall, there's a, um, um, like a bar area or mm -hmm. a concession area. 
And one of them, they had one part for the performance. So I went back there to get a stout. <clears throat> so I had my, my karate gi on and, and uh, I went back and talking to the bartender and I said, uh, excuse me, uh, can I get a stout please? And he said, um, um, I, I can't serve you with clothes. So I said, oh, come on. Uh, look, you know, just give me a couple of minutes. I'll take them. Now he says, the manager's sitting over there. I go, oh, sh you know, so I guess. I'm, so while I'm talking to him, true story, while I'm talking to him, I feel a hand on my shoulder and I turn around and somebody shoves a pint of stout in my hand. He says, if you drink a stout, you can drink with us. Richard Burton. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, really? You went drinking with Richard Burton? Uh, and I, oh, my I God. But it's just like, you know, you're thinking, ah, it's somebody that looks like Rick Campier. And at the time, he was going out with uh, Princess Elizabeth from, what the hell, where is she from? She was there. And so he comes, we, we go over and I sit down. <coughs> and drinking stout, and he gets into an argument. Richard Burton gets into an argument with a, a janitor about Scottish poetry. <laughs> and the janitor says to him, what the hell do you know about Scottish poetry? You're a Welshman. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, that is the most wrong, superb story. Throughout all this time, I've run into so many things like that that it just, you know, you look back and you, somebody said, I keep getting the, uh, the thing from people saying, you should write a book. And I said, if I wrote a book, it would have to be fiction. It couldn't be, nobody would believe these things happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> you have to do this fiction. But, uh, yeah. oh, uh, that, that is a wonderful, wonderful story. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love I love the caretaker telling off Richard Burton for being Welsh. Oh yeah. <laughs> you got some nerves pointed about Scottish border, you're a Welsh. <laughs> you think you are, Richard Burton? What do you know? <laughs> Super. Oh, that's, that's a wonderful story. We traveled all over with that that show. It was incredible. I mean sell out crowds. It amazed me because from a, from a martial arts standpoint, it was more of a, martial arts were part of it, but it was so many, like the guy catching bullets in his teeth and, mm. and some guy getting punched in the throat and kicked in the groin and <laughs> crazy stuff. There was that part of it, but there was the other part that was actually leg legitimate martial arts. And yeah. this thing would sell out every place we'd go, would sell out. Mm. And it was just amazing to me. Who would buy a ticket to see this stuff? <laughs> Obviously, a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, that's yeah. been so interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When I you get that. a chance and yeah. you can travel again, you ought to come out and visit. I would yeah, love absolutely. to. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. If still up the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we'll stay in touch, and yeah, I'd love to do something again if you feel up to it. But uh, absolutely, just go yeah. ahead of time and. That, that would be very very yeah. interesting i think i yeah. think the idea of uh developing more about your your stories of okinawa and the language the culture yeah. um and just just what you were saying about gojiru and the elements of it yeah. sound fascinating to me yeah 
it's with, it's what with, got, um, it still keeps me uh, inquisitive. You know, yeah. it still keeps me looking, and and there's so much depth to it, and that's why we only have twelve kata because the kata is very mm. deep. It's not broad, and you have to keep digging. And like I said, that uh, you keep revisiting kata over and over and over again as you grow, as you get a better understanding and so on. So the kata just keeps growing and growing and growing. And it's uh, the interest, obviously, because because of that, my interest keeps growing. Mm. You know, I'm not missing something. What, what am I, uh, what, uh, uh, even cultural, cultural aspects of Okinawa as opposed to mainland. Mm. It's just, um, my student, Bill Kern, uh, he went to Okinawa about, oh, I guess 15 years ago. He never came back. He married an Okinawan girl, and uh, he's been living there ever since. Found a home. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a, a wonderful place. It yeah, really it does. does. We yeah. always said the hardest part of going to Okinawa is when you have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> That's the hard part. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd, we'd love to do this again if we could. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah it would be, thank be you brilliant. for the thank, opportunity. Well, thank you for your time and thanks for, for coming on. And thanks to Pat McCarthy for, for putting us in contact as well. Oh, yeah, I will. I'll tell him. Yeah. I'll talk to him later on today. I'll tell him that, that we finally got together. and. Uh, yeah. And tell him how nice we are, won't you? Yeah, yeah. Say lots of good things about us. <laughs> tell, him, tell him that we're really nice, yeah? I will. Thank you. <laughs> like, I'd, like, I'd like to end it off with one one phrase that I use all the time. Okay. The phrase that I use constantly, and I think is the essence of Goju, is be as hard as the world makes you be, and be as soft as the world will let you be. There's a difference yeah. between being kind, courteous, and gentle because I choose to be, and yeah. being that way because I'm not strong enough to be otherwise. And yeah, I think yeah. that sums sums up the whole thing. Could you, you say know, it again? Could you say that again? Be as hard as the world makes you be and be as soft as the world will let you be. So my choice, that. that's my choice because I train, I make that choice. And I can be either way because of my training allows me to take care of myself, to defend myself. But my training also says that kindness is the real kindness and and um, consideration are the real strengths that's, that yeah. grow with you as you get older. The physical strength fade. Yeah. So now in older years, you have to be, you have to use your brain more than your brawn to protect yourself. Mm. Yeah, that's so, so true. Yeah, so, so that's my saying that I always, whenever I do seminars, I try to leave that with them and ask them to think about that. Yeah, that's worth, that's, that is, um, worthy of thought that is worthy of pondering that's a really really beautiful yeah. saying thank you for that yeah um, i love that pleasure. wonderful yeah. thank there we you go. well so thank much. you again for your time sensei um we'll, we will definitely be in touch and, and we'll, we'll definitely do this again oh stay in touch even if we don't want to do a podcast just give me a buzz and we we can chat yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. Anytime. Anytime. Brilliant. Thank you. A pleasure.
Thank you, Sensei. Yes, we'll care. speak to you again, and we'll let yeah. you know when we're putting this up. Okay. Yeah. Take, Take care. care. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.